Mick plans to attend the 2017 Hawaii Festival of Birds at Ha'akalumanu September 15th through 18th, 2017. Come together to discover and celebrate the diversity of Hawaii's bird life, newly countable in the ABA area, by the way, and the habitats that support them, and hear inspired presentations from ABA President Jeffrey Gordon and ABA board member Ken Kaufman. To get more information or to register, go to birdfesthawaii.org. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast. I am your host, Nate Swick. Uh, There was an article that came out in last week in McLean's, which is a a news magazine based out of Toronto, Ontario. You might have seen it kicking around on social media. It was called the the Rise of Millennial Urban Dwelling Birders. I thought it was I thought it was notable for a couple reasons. First, man, here's birding covered positively in a serious general interest publication without a single birders flock headline in sight. So that's that's pretty cool. And uh, second, I don't know if you've been following the spate of uh, various millennials are killing the whatever industry stories that have been coming out in the last few months. There are a ton of them out there. Apparently, this generation is responsible for the deaths of everything from wine sales to casual restaurants to marriage. Uh, But they're not killing birding. Evidently, that is that is one thing that millennials will spare from their cultural murder spree. So to all the millennials listening, thank you for that. Anyway, the article goes on to say that the this rise of data culture, uh, eBird, phone field guides, and other apps like, like LarkWire, Merlin, iNaturalist now, have, have really made it easy to share information very widely. And there's also sort of this general social media sharing ethos that we've talked about here on the podcast, all sort of lending itself to the gamification of birding that is, that is supposedly appealing to this generation. It's all sort of funny because, you know, birders, we have made a sport out of finding birds for for decades. We are the original gamifiers. I am not sure if that is a word. Anyway, apparently droves of 20 and 30-somethings are are taking up birding, which I'm not sure about, but maybe maybe it is true. Maybe I'm just not not paying attention to the right places. I I am not a millennial. I'm a little old for that. I'm part of that that generation they just named where we we grew up without technology and then picked it up in college or or just after. So we're not digital natives like the millennials to use the the approved generational taxonomy, but we're you know, we're fluent enough that we can update our own apps without help. Uh, I think the line might be do you understand Snapchat? Uh, that that's a tangent. That's maybe for another time. Maybe another podcast. Um, I actually got my first smartphone when my first kid was born, and I, I sold that whole idea to my wife that I would use it to take lots of pictures of the baby and uh, send them to to family members. But really, you know, in my heart, all I really wanted was iBird Pro and you know the promise of an eBird app, which is not a thing yet, but but came pretty soon afterwards. Anyway, I can I can poke fun at this article. I don't really mean to. It's it's a really good article, and there are some some really good quotes from younger birders, uh, Nolan Pellin from Ontario and Melissa Hafting from BC, who incidentally runs the invaluable BC Rare Bird blog. It does sort of feel like like birding is this this boulder rolling downhill, kind of gaining momentum. Maybe sort of a bird specific analogy would be a stooping peregrine falcon at the at the top of its dive. Um, you know, the, all this stuff is, is pretty exciting. There's, there's also sort of an embrace your geek mentality that is, that is growing out there in the culture uh, that has been a really positive thing for birding, I think. So um, from that, 
embrace of the greater birding community. We're going to we're going to dial it in a little bit further. Uh, in the last part of the show, we'll hear from Laura Erickson, who is the author of the recently published ABA Field Guide to the Birds of Minnesota, about her experiences writing that book and her favorite thing about birding in that part of the world. But first, Nick Block is back to talk taxonomy, specifically the recent American Ornithological Society decisions, the taxonomic decisions, you probably heard about that. And Birders Guide author Michael Redder is joining him. They'll be with me, Wither, Audubon's Warbler, and Eastern Willet. We'll find out after this week's Rare Birds. <laughs> This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of July, first part of August 2017. View vagrants to the ABA area are as exciting as Jabiru. The massive neotropical stork has been recorded north of Mexico about 15 times, most recently in Chambers County, Texas, on August 1st of this year. Uh, that's just east of Houston, north of Anahuac National Wildlife Refuge. Most Jabiru records in the ABA are from Texas, though the bird has been recorded in the past in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Oklahoma. They don't tend to stick around long, but this one stuck for at least a couple days, and a lot of birders got to see it. Uh, with this year turning out to be so spectacular for large southern waders wandering north, birders down there should keep eyes open for this and other neotropical wading birds. Things like bear-throated tiger heron uh, are plausible vagrants. They have been recorded in the past, possibly could be in the future. A couple first records to report both from the middle of the continent. In Kansas, a brown booby was photographed in Gray County, that is in the southwest part of the state. We've had brown boobies in Oklahoma and Nebraska so far this year, so it stands to reason that Kansas would be next. Uh, incredibly, the bird was not noted anywhere near a body of water, but photographed from a camera atop an out-of-service wind turbine. Wind turbines, not traditional booby habitat. Not great for birding, uh, period, for that matter. The other first to report a bar-tailed godwit was found in Marion County, Iowa. For a first for that state, it was seen at the hilariously named Pinchy Bottoms. Uh, bar-tailed godwit is technically an ABA Code 2 species as it breeds on Alaska's north slope, but it's always an exceptional find away from Alaska, particularly in the continent's interior. That is only a small part of the ABA Vagrant Roundup for this period. For everything else, check out the ABA blog on Friday mornings at blog.aba.org. For the most up-to-date news on all ABA area rare birds, join the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. You all know the drill by now. It is at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. Hello, Kasia Crossbill. Goodbye, Thayer's Goal. Welcome back, Rivoli's Hummingbird. The American Ornithology Society's annual checklist supplement is hotly anticipated by birders every year, and this year is no exception. Some of the 2017 decisions were expected, some were not, and we are going to break them down today to celebrate splits and mourn the lumps. With me today to talk about all that is, once again... Nick Block, professor of biology at Stonehill College and member of the ABA's Recording Standards and Ethics Committee. Welcome back, Nick. Thank you. Glad to be back. Cool. And also here is the ABA's own Michael Redder. He's the editor of the Birder's Guide Quarterly Magazine and the author of the brand new ABA Field Guide to Birds of Illinois, as well as the annual compiler of our comprehensive summary of the AOS supplement on the ABA blog. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, Nick. So... Let's get right into it. There were a lot of kind of high-profile decisions in this year's supplement. Uh, let's start with the one that probably caused the most consternation among North American birders, the lump of Thayer's goal into Iceland goal. Uh, how did you guys feel about how that decision was made? Um, I'll start with you, Michael. Oh, gosh. How do I feel about how the decision was made? I 
like the I like what they've done better than what there was before, but I don't really like the logic behind it. The the thinking behind it seems to have been well. If people had had all the information we have now, this is what they would have decided in 1953 or whenever it was. So there was kind of seemed to be some mind reading going on, which yeah, sort of sort of rolling back the clock. <laughs> yeah, I know that um, you and I have talked about how retaining the name Iceland goal as a to refer to both of these populations, these Kumlians birds and the the Western Thayer's goal is is kind of confusing. In a, in a perfect world, you know, speculating, obviously, what do you think would have been the best way to go about dealing with that? Knowing that, you know, we, we don't always, we don't really know what's going on on the, on the breeding grounds. We're just sort of making, making a guess. Yeah. Um, so the, a, the uh, checklist committee for the AOS has actually put forth a rule in years past that they say they will try to follow, which says that if there's a lump or a split that every new, new, grouping of birds gets a different name so that we don't have the kind of confusion there was when Canada goose was split into Canada goose and cackling goose. And so in this particular instance, if they were going to lump their skull in Iceland gall and follow their own advice, they should have called it something else. And that's what I would have advocated for. Yeah. Like Kumlian skull or something perhaps. Yeah. Well, either that would have been even more confusing because Kumlian skull already means something. <laughs> it means a particular, um, what's probably a hybrid swarm between Iceland gull and Thayer's gull. But so like right now, if I, or last winter, if I'd heard someone say Iceland gull, I would have thought, well, do they mean Iceland or Kumlins or do they mean just Iceland, which is the totally white winged birds that breed, that breed in Greenland. Now, when someone says Iceland gull, do they mean just a white winged bird? Do they mean a white winged bird or a Kumlins or do they mean a white winged bird or a Kumlins or a Thayer's? So yeah, that's certainly confusing. Um, Nick, what was your thought about the um, that decision? Did you did you expect them to make this decision? Yes, I did. Um, uh, I, I honestly didn't, uh, you know, didn't go into the proposal too much. I, I kind of knew uh, beforehand from talking to other folks kind of what was in there, and I expected it to go through. Um, I'm not sure that I agree. Um, I, you know, I the committee is quite conservative in the changes they make without new evidence. And in this case, it was weird because basically they're making a decision by saying that we need to throw out old evidence that was most likely fraudulent, go back to the, the status quo before that evidence came out. So it's kind of a weird situation for them that I, I, don't, I don't remember... I mean, the thing is, I, I there may as well be precedent, but I don't remember any precedent for something like this, where they're making a decision by basically stating that data showing they were different species were fraudulent. Kind of an odd case. It was really weird. And, you know, if they had gone back actually to, to where we were back in the 50s, it would have been theirs and herring goal, which you obviously yeah. can't do. Right. So this, this was going back to a hypothetical that never existed. Right. No one ever said taxonomy didn't break new ground. <laughs> yeah. It's also kind of a unique situation where doing new field studies is obviously logistically very difficult for this group. And, you know, I think I think they kind of just made the decision based on on the best possible, you know, uh, uh, evidence out there. And, and no, I'm not surprised it passed. I'm, I, the odds of anyone going up there and trying to now provide evidence are so low. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the question. Do, I mean, do you think that they will try and clarify down the road? 
on this? Or is it just this is what we're going to have? <laughs> I, I mean, to be honest, I get the feeling this is what we're going to have. Still, you get some intrepid grad student with tons of money to go up to the breeding grounds and look at mixed species or mixed, you know, what it pairs and, and get genetic data across the range. And I just, I don't see that happening. Yeah. Well, speaking of new information, the cash across bill split, you know, we've talked for a very long time about this, this red crossbow conundrum that we've had in North America. It was sort of a little bit surprising to see uh, the AOS go ahead and, and make this one split, even though the, the evidence really does seem seem overwhelming. What did you think about this split? Um, so I, I wasn't surprised that it did split. I was a little surprised that it passed um, so easily. I think it's like an eight to two vote. And um, I was a little surprised by that. But I mean, I think that's a credit to Dr. Bankman and, and his collaborators on putting together a body of evidence that um, kind of satisfied all the things that the committee tends to want to see before they make a split, particularly of things that are very kind of recent species, things that are newly evolved. They can be really conservative about, as we might talk about with some other ones. But, you know, the crossbills, they've got evidence of them maintaining uh, isolation despite other types overlapping. Um, you know, there's genetic differences, uh, morphological differences, behavioral differences, all these things that the committee likes to see, these multiple lines of evidence. So even though it's a really, really recent species and, you know, uh, it's only one little tiny group of this massive complex of crossbills that are really confusing, you know, it, it kind of crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's. I, I guess I didn't expect it to be eight to two, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's go right into it. Uh, Yellow-rumped warbler, will it? A lot of birders thought that these were, maybe not given, but as as close as you can get. I mean, the evidence is is not likely to change, and yet uh, the AOS decided to you know retain those those groups as single species. What happened there? Um, <laughs> I mean, I think both both votes essentially came out 50-50 and they need two-thirds approval to pass so so they didn't pass and my impression from reading the comments on both proposals is that a lot of it seems to come down to I I might be wrong but a lot of it seems to come down to the subjective definition of what's a species versus a subspecies a lot of the no comments basically said that they thought they should just be subspecies. Whereas, you know, the folks supporting the splits say that, you know, this is, this crosses enough of a line of differentiation between the two that we should call them species. And, and a lot of it seemed to come down to that. And I'm, I'm, I tend to be on the liberal side with what we call a species. And I, I would have voted yes on both of them personally. And, and I think, you know, and I'm not, you know, conservative committees, taxonomic committees are the way to go, honestly. But I just feel like there's been some inconsistency here in how they're applying some of these lines of evidence that might argue for one, one species or two, basically. I completely agree with everything Nick just said. It seems in these instances, it really seems to have come down to on the per, come down to the personal philosophy of the person who was voting. Uh, the evidence that I saw was convincing in both cases. 
Um, and it, with the with the yellow rumped warbler in particular, the 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 folks who really adhere to the biological species concept essentially say, well, the two hybridize and their offspring are fertile, so they must be the same species. But yet they don't lump golden-winged and blue-winged warblers, and they don't lump glaucous-winged gulls and western gulls. So it seems to me just more like inertia happening. This is the way it is, so we're going to, you know, if it's a close call, we're just going to leave it the way it is. And there's something to be said for that. But on the other hand, when your whole test is whether or not they can hybridize, what do you do with the southernmost population of yellow rump warbler called Goldman's warbler, which is only found in high mountains in Guatemala and doesn't even come into contact with the others um, during the breeding season. So, like, there's no way you could test whether or not they're separate species using a kind of a purist view of that concept. Although maybe Nick will disagree with me there. Well, no, I mean, allopatric, so geographically isolated groups, Per, per, you know, present quite a problem to the biological species concept, which relies on whether or not they can reproduce together. But if they're not in the same place, you can't observe that, right? And that's where you start to have to make judgment calls based on similar species and how different they are and places where they do have a chance to breed together. And this is where I feel like they are being a little inconsistent. Like, so one of the examples that Michael brings up, golden-winged and blue-winged warblers, right? They overlap over a pretty large area. There's all sorts of hybridization going on between them. And it's, and it's the areas where they hybridize, the hybrid zone is not stable. It kind of blue wings moving in to golden winged areas. Usually for people who have a little more relaxed view of the biological species concept, an unstable hybrid zone, one that is kind of shifting or, you know, where one species is getting a smaller rate, range or something like that, that tends to be evidence that you would say that they are one species because they're not telling each other apart. Usually stable hybrid zones, like ones that essentially don't move or are narrow, like in the case of yellow rump warbler, that usually implies that even though that they are not telling each other apart before they mate, they don't do that. They do breed together. But then the hybrid zone, there's no gene flow out of it. And... That usually, for folks using a more relaxed biological species concept, like usually that implies that they are good species. Eventually what happens in those scenarios of hybrids being selected against compared to their parents is that over enough evolutionary time, you start to see levels of hybridation go down because birds that do hybridize are less fit than the birds that don't. You start to see the emergence of what we call prezygotic isolation. It's a, it's a process called reinforcement. And so in the yellow-rumped warblers, that's the prediction. The prediction is that eventually they will stop hybridizing. As opposed to blue-winged and gold-winged warblers, there's no indication really that, that they're going to stop, like that there's going to be this scenario of them stop, you know, ending hybridization. And yet they're maintained as different species. The other, and, and I like to stick to warblers here. Michael brought up the gulls, which is another good one. But the other example from a similar region is Hermit and Townsend's warbler. Hermit and Townsend's warblers freely hybridize. Hermits are actually being kind of swamped out by Townsend's warblers. Their hybrid zone is extremely unstable. There's a great paper that shows it's been moving like hundreds of miles over the past, I don't know how many years. 
and yet they're maintained as different species. So, I, I mean, I'm not going to hold that against the committee because as far as I know, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. No one has proposed to lump this. Right. So for speculating, let's say down the road, someone does propose to lump golden wing, blue wing warblers. Exactly. What does the committee do then? So, I, I mean, I got to tell you, like, the odds of me actually doing this are so low. I don't have time. But, like, I am so <laughs> tempted to write a proposal to lump golden winged and blue winged or hermit and townsends because if you use the logic that they're using as a whole like the committee as a whole not all members obviously that they used on the yellow rumped warbler decision they just made then blue winged and golden winged warblers and hermit and townsends warblers absolutely should be lumped if you use their same logic in 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 my opinion and so that's what to me is frustrating so and and this is why i think inertia is meaning more than data in some cases yeah. uh, let's, let's keep it in the warblers what about this nashville warbler split you know when we talked before nick we didn't not you didn't think that it was terribly likely but you know it it got a majority of votes it didn't get enough to to pass but we were quite close to to calavera's warbler and nashville whatever rufus capped or whatever they would call the eastern one so do you think that that is that is a potential split down the road do you think that that one's gonna see some momentum I do. So, um, I, I, like, like you said, I was a little surprised that it went, was it 6-4, I think? So it, it came really yeah. close to passing because they didn't have much in the way of um, genetic data. It was um, mm-hmm. mitochondrial DNA only. And, and the last time we talked, we talked about kind of the problems with that. But, you know, the other data sets, vocal, behavioral, morphological, you know, again, these multiple lines of evidence, they were enough to get six people to vote yes. And basically they were, they were voting yes and in using the mitochondrial data by basically saying they don't believe that the mitochondrial data is wrong. They don't believe it's going to be one of these odd cases where you get the wrong picture from just using one gene. You know, to be honest, I would agree with that. Like, I do not expect when they add nuclear DNA, I don't expect it to show anything different. But I would have voted no on this because I just, I can't, I can't do... I can't support taxonomy based on one gene. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I, so I think, it, I think it will be just a matter of more data. And when somebody adds a good amount of nuclear DNA data to this, I think it's going to pass, given how the votes went this time. Yeah, so start paying attention to where those winter Nashvilles come from in the east. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, watch yeah. for those tail-wagging Nashville warblers That's in the right. east. I'm, like Michael has found in Illinois, I, I, I yeah. seem to remember, yeah. So another another uh, lump that did not happen that we thought was going to be you know likely was the red pole lump, Hori and Common. How do you think that played out? I mean, it, it certainly looks like I mean that's a good candidate for a lump down the road, even if it didn't happen this time. Um, do you think we're just going to get more evidence for that lump, and eventually the the committee is just is going to have to act on that? You know, I don't. It's hard to say whether or not we'll get more evidence for the lump, but. The no votes on that, my impression was the general consensus was they just can't bring themselves to lump them without detailed field studies. But that's where, honestly, maybe the conservative side of this is good. But it's just, it's still, to me, is such a contrast because the red poles, the genetic evidence, and we talked about last time, the amount of genetic data they have is enormous. And it shows virtually no differentiation at all. That contrasts with yellow rumped warbler and Willet. These two splits did not happen, yet those two have also 
enormous amounts of genetic data that show very strong differentiation. And so I, I just, it's, it's, it's very confusing to me. It seems like there, there are certain members of the committee that really are hinging on having evidence from field studies of birds breeding together or not. Even when they're allopatric, you know, not found in the same area, they want, they want playback experiments, like say from Eastern Willets, play it to the song to Western Willets and see if they respond the same. Like they just, and, and to me, it seems like they're not adhering in some of these cases to their general philosophy that's stated on their website that multiple lines of evidence are favored. In this case, I just, it, it doesn't seem like the decisions the committee as a whole made kind of follow that. I mean, I, I don't know. It's it's a bit frustrating to to see some really amazing lines of evidence essentially being discounted because there are no field studies. So mm. I don't know, but that's me. I'm not a hardcore kind of old school biological species concept kind of biologist. So you know, it's it's easy for me to say that, but yeah. <laughs> We've covered some of the more controversial stuff there. Um, I don't think we need to go too much into detail on some of the other things. But, um, Michael, in the uh, summary that you included on the ABA blog, uh, you included a few of the potential decisions, potential proposals that you see down the road. Which one of those do you think, taking into account the ones that we've seen in 2017, which one of those do you think might have some legs? Oh, gosh. Um there are a number of things that certainly I think are in the pipes over the next few years, but it, it in the end it comes down to which does which does someone actually take the time to write a proposal for? <laughs> right. So, for instance, like the the data are there for splitting the genus Vireo into a bunch of different genera, or um, a total rework of kind of greater hummingbird taxonomy and changing genera around. But until someone writes that proposal, it's not going to happen, even though we have the the, the data for it. I've, I've heard speculation about someone writing a proposal to lump Bicknell's thrush back in the gray cheek brush, but I also just saw some, just saw a paper the other day that says that's probably not the way to go. I've also heard about the idea of lumping gilded flicker back in the northern flicker. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure, not sure what they're going to do. They always talk about white, white uh, breasted nut hatches, and that hasn't happened yet, but that might be in the works. I'm still waiting for Warbling Vireo, too. <laughs> All right, yeah. Good. Well, um, thanks, guys, for coming in to, to talk to me about this. Really glad we were able to kind of break some of these things down. We'll retain the hoary red pole on our, on our respective lists. And, uh, you know, just enjoy that, I guess. And uh, we'll, we'll look forward to 2018. Uh, thanks, thanks, Michael. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nate. Sure. Take care. Bye-bye. Author, broadcaster, and recipient of the ABA's Roger Tory Peterson Award, Laura Erickson's new book is The ABA Field Guide to the Birds of Minnesota. Here she speaks about her book and her favorite birds in her part of the continent. Mine is The ABA Field Guide to the Birds of Minnesota. It was um, fun to do to because I don't usually write about bird identification. I focus more normally on natural history and behavior. But it was fun to think about it in a new way to as an invitation to people who don't know much about birds and to people who do know about birds but haven't birded much in Minnesota 
it was just fun to go back in time to when I was learning bird identification to remember which things really did help me to figure out which bird was which. Lisa Johnson, who's the woman who works at the local radio station that carries my radio show, um, I gave her a copy, and she had gotten a new camera uh, this past year and has been taking a lot of bird photos. She had always been sending me the picture and asking me what it was, and now she's really enjoying going through the field guide and figuring out one by one what her birds are. And it's been really gratifying to me that she's taking so much pleasure in the figuring out what each one is and that my book has been really helpful for her in doing that. I got absorbed just fanatically so with LeConte Sparrow when I saw my very first one on May 1st, 1976 at Whitefish Point in Michigan. I was on a Michigan Audubon field trip. Everybody else went inside at lunchtime and I couldn't imagine sitting indoors where there were all these birds everywhere. So I was outside taking a walk and as I walked around the, the parking area, I came upon a LeConte sparrow and went in to get my husband to show him. And I told people there's a LeConte sparrow out there. And the guy who was uh, their bird bander came up and told me that was impossible. They'd never had one there. And so I said, well, I can show you where it is. So I took him out and there was the LeConte sparrow. So he got our whole group. He set up a mist net and then had our group walk toward the bird to walk it into the net. And he pulled it out of the net. I'd never seen bird banding before. And he was this very big guy. And he had this huge hand, and he's holding this tiny, beautiful little sparrow in his big hand. And the sparrow did not look the least bit frightened. He looked angry. He reminded me of Ahab confronting Moby Dick. And so when I went home and did the ratio related to the biggest sperm whale on record versus, the, uh, and I had to research it, get the weight of a Leconte sparrow to that man was huger compared to a Leconte sparrow than the biggest sperm whale on record was to that man. Better yet, when my in-laws retired up in Port Wing, Wisconsin, uh, a couple years later, it turned out LeConte sparrows were on their property, nesting in the cow pastures. And so I got to spend so much time watching this beautiful sparrow that uh, T.S. Roberts likened to a gold dollar piece. Only a gold dollar piece weighs more than a Lacan Sparrow. But it was just so thrilling to spend time with this beautiful little bird. So it's always been my favorite. Laura Erickson's new book, The ABA Field Guide to Birds of Minnesota, can be found wherever books are sold in Minnesota. For the rest of us, you can find it at the ABA's bookselling partner, Beautio Books. That's beautiobooks.com.
The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and you can help support this podcast by becoming a member today. ABA members receive birding and birder's guide magazines, discounts from our friends and partners, and the knowledge that you are helping to support birding and the birding community in North America and beyond. I want to give a shout out to Carl Simmerman of Elkhorn, Wisconsin, Evan and Julia Mann of Montrose, Pennsylvania, Rodney Schmidt of Colorado Springs, Colorado, Mark Boas from Pottstown, Pennsylvania, and Jonathan Taylor of LaGrange, Kentucky, who specifically writes to say that the podcast is 100% why I am joining. I don't ask for compliments, but I'm not going to say I don't appreciate them. Thanks, all of you, for your support. Welcome to the ABA. You can get more information about becoming a member at aba.org slash join. President of the ABA and executive producer of this podcast is Jeffrey Gordon. Technical production is by John Lowry with help from David Hartley and Greg Neese. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. That is not to be confused with the Australian Breastfeeding Association. They are a real organization. I am, I am not joking. Make sure you get us straight because you are going to get very, very different advice about how to find bush tits, depending on which you ask. Ours are not found in the Australian backcountry, just so you know. Questions, comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. Complaints can go to the Australian Breastfeeding Association. If you've made it this far, go one step further and leave a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Your comments give us valuable feedback and help people find us. We appreciate it. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.